0: is brought to you by Tee Public. Go to blackgirlnerds.com forward slash t-shirts. We have a store filled with tons of different designs from various designers. Sizes range from small to 5XL. Coming up for two separate events, including Star Wars, May the 4th, May the 4th be with you, and Captain America Civil War, there will be new t-shirts and designs added to our store. So be sure to bookmark blackgirlnerds.com forward slash t-shirts. Again, that's blackgirlnerds.com forward slash t-shirts. So that way you can take advantage of the new sales that are going to be coming up for both Star Wars and Captain America Civil War.
1: I play
2: Hawk Girl on DC's Legends of Tomorrow, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Stefan Kapusik. I'm playing
3: Colossus in Deadpool Movie, and I love Black Girl Nerds. Uh,
4: what's going on, everybody? My name is Arjun Gupta from Sci fis of the Magicians, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast.
1: This is April Rain, creator of the Oscar So White hashtag, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast.
2: I'm Johnny Jay,
5: and I'm creator of A Tribe Called Geek, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast.
6: Hey, it's Debbie Cloud Bell, host of the CNN show United Shades of America, and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds Podcast.
5: The actors bit shake the booty for Black Girl Nerds. Bit
1: a shake the booty
0: for Black Girl Nerds. Yeah, bit shake the booty for Black Girl Nerds. Yeah. Bit shake the
7: booty for Black Girl Nerds. Bit
0: a shake your booties for Black Girl Nerds. Thanks for tuning in to episode 71 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie, and I am your host. This episode is titled, The Lucas Brothers and Roots. Two segments. First segment is with the Lucas Brothers. They're a comedy duo, but more than just a duo, they're an identical twin comedy duo that you can see in stand-up comedy venues all across the country, and they're also best known for their work on the Lucas Brothers Moving Company, which was an animated series featuring them and many adventures that they went through in their lives. Also, the Lucas Brothers chats with us about their lives and this comedy medium that they're in, and we get into some discussion about lemonade, which is a little bit fun there, so this should be a really funny, great segment. I uh, had the pleasure of talking to these guys, and they're so cool, so laid back. I felt like I could definitely like sit back and have a beer with them and hang out with them all night. So you're definitely going to enjoy the Lucas Brothers segment. And that is co-hosted by Karan and KB. In our second segment, I went to New York City at the Tribeca Film Festival to watch the screening of the new series, Roots, Roots is not totally new. You may remember the miniseries that debuted back in the 70s featuring LeVar Burton and Ben Vereen, Leslie Uggams, and a whole cast of really great actors back then. But now the Roots has come back to our television and Lifetime presents a new version of Roots with a brand new cast featuring Forest Whitaker, Anna Paquin, Lawrence Fishburne, Malachi Kirby, Reggae Jean Page, James Purifoy, Mackay Pfeiffer, T.I., Anika Noni Rose, and the list goes on and on and on. In this particular segment, some of the actors from the film had a brief discussion and a QA and a with audience members that were at the screening. So it's a very profound film. I did catch the very first episode. It's an eight-episode miniseries that's going to premiere on Memorial Day. And finally, just want to extend an additional thank you to everyone who has supported us through Patreon. We've gotten over 60 supporters so far, and we want to see that number to continue to grow because the more that we get the support, the better that we are able to fund these podcasts to be able to go out to places like New York City and cover the Roots screening at Tribeca Film Festival to be able to go across the country to various conventions and videotape, record, do all kinds of coverage of things that, again, you don't always hear on the mainstream side. So I want to say thank you for supporting us on Patreon. And if you have not had the opportunity yet to become a patron, it's very easy. All you have to do is go to patreon.com forward slash blackgirlnerds. And you can donate anything from a dollar to up to $100 per month or more supporting us in this digital space, which we're hoping will grow substantially because of your support. And thank you so much for listening to episode 71 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast, the Lucas Brothers and Roots. Enjoy. are Kenneth and Keith Lucas. Since their stand-up performance on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon back in 2012, they were featured in Rolling Stone magazine's Hot List, appeared on Arrested Development, HBO's Funny as Hell, and they're also the creators and stars of the Lucas Brothers Moving Company, an animated series that premiered in fall of 2013 on Fox. The Super Late Morning Show, a Comedy Central web talk show, is also where you can see them. And coming up in May, they're featured on the new show called Lady Dynamite, premiering on Netflix. Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. I am so excited by these two guests that we have on. We've been on a streak lately with really great comedians. And we have comedians that are best known for an animated TV series. You may have heard of it called the lucas brothers moving company we have the lucas brothers here on the black girl nerds podcast and you can currently find them later on on netflix on the show lady dynamite thank you guys for coming on our show
6: oh thanks you guys for having us thanks for having us we wanted to do this for a while and i'm so glad that we're finally doing it
0: awesome yes thank you and we have our lovely co hosts karan and kb thank you ladies hello thank you hi Hi, Karan. Hi, KB. Hey, guys. Hi. So Kenny and Keith, Lucas Brothers. I, I, I want to say that this is a first for us interviewing twins. I think this is a pretty cool experience. Karan's had some experience with the Gibbs sisters. This I've is... got the twin touch. You've got the twin <laughs> touch. <laughs>
6: what's, what's the twin touch? I, I, I want to I know what this is. <laughs> I,
7: was, I was birthed of a twin, so oh. it's native to me. Gotcha. <laughs> uh,
6: uh, that's, that's beautiful. <laughs> Identical or? Uh... Identical. Sweet. Oh, that's dope. Sometimes. Are you guys
7: close? Mm-hmm. Some days. <laughs> <laughs>
6: no, a parents, parents. Oh, a parent is a yeah. twin. Yes, my see? mother. Parents, are they close or some days are
7: close? They are extremely, strangely, weirdly, symbiotically close. <laughs>
6: strangely. Do you ever confuse them? Do you ever confuse one like your aunt and your
7: mom? No, one is very loud like I am and the other is more
0: passive-aggressive. Ah, I, mean. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. So, I mean, I'm sure that being a twin can come with its own set of challenges. How is it being a twin in stand-up comedy? And is it harder or is it easier with things like comedic timing for you guys?
6: That is a great question. I, I would say it's easier because uh, you have someone to work with. And if, if you're like, like, let's say, for instance, I'm bombing like I'm just like none of my jokes are working and I just suck it's always good to have someone else there to share my pain share responsibility, Shere responsibility is great yeah it makes it a lot easier and uh, stand-ups are very lonely uh occupation I mean you, you're by yourself for the most part when you travel so to have a partner and crime to travel and to you know do shows together I think is a bit of a leg up and it helps me, at least for me, at least helps me maintain my sanity. The problem is the stand-up is usually like, you know, it's a solo thing. So you can like delve into sort of your more psychological problems when you're a twin, unless you have every experience together. Sometimes it's hard to generate material, but I think we've done a pretty decent job. Yeah, we've we've tried our best to make sure like our experiences are at least somewhat, somewhat similar, but also that we can comment on each other's experience. But when we first started, to get back to your question, yeah, figuring out the comedic timing was very tough. Uh, we were both talking way too fast and uh cutting, had, each, other off. cutting each other off and like we had just <laughs> just bombing. Yeah, we just had desperate ideas and we were like we were just, you know, going down different a different path in terms of what we wanted to talk about comedically, but I think after you, you know, get up enough and you know, you, you sort of find that synergy and uh, we, we figured it out. Somewhat, 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 some we're, we're, <laughs> we're mediocre now, and that's good. Uh, it's good to be mediocre. Yeah, I'm a big fan of mediocrity. Yeah, mediocrity is underrated.
0: People just don't really appreciate mediocrity anymore. They really I don't don't. <laughs>
6: <Right>? <laughs> it's so much easier to be mediocre. I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I don't just want to strive for excellence. It's too much.
0: Don't get that. It's way too stressful. <laughs> So, how did the two of you get started in comedy, and what inspired you to start the animated show, The Lucas Brothers Moving Company?
6: Okay, so, I was in law school, and I was around 09. I was at NYU, and I was just like, so, and I being Kenny, I was sort of struggling, and I hated it, and it sucked, and I didn't want to be a lawyer for the rest of my life, because I, I don't like lawyers. So, I was like, <laughs> we do love our <laughs> lawyers. We love our <laughs> lawyers. <The> lawyers are great. <laughs> I love my words. He looks out for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I was just like, fuck it. I want to do something else. And I started. I started smoking weed a lot more. And, I, and then I went to like an open mic in New York. It was uh, Eastville. That was the first open mic I went to. And I was like, I fucking love this. This. This is dope. I know I'm not getting paid, but it's like a passion that I just kind of, kind of happened when I went there. So I called Keith up. We spoke for about like five minutes, and I was like, yo, you should move up to me. He was at Duke. Football. I was like, yo, drop that shit. Just come to New York and let's do some comedy maybe. Yeah, he, he convinced me within five minutes. I was like, oh, that sounds like a perfect idea. And uh, then I just dropped everything and moved up to Jersey and we started uh, doing open mics.
3: What was the
8: <laughs> like from law school to film and television? Like you just mentioned that you guys were doing a lot of open mic nights, but how was that transition from you know the open mics to film and TV?
6: So at first, as soon as you drop out of law school and you decide to get into it, it's exciting. You're like, "Holy shit, we're going on this new adventure! It's <laughs> gonna be dope. Like it's exhilarating, yeah. you, you know." But then you realize, "Oh, you gotta pay rent." <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, Bye. And I was like, "For so long, I was cool." And so it was a struggle. Like, oh was, yeah, yeah. The first, stuff. the first year was first two uh, years. First two years, I mean, it was a, pretty much a disaster. Like we didn't have any money. We we decided to move to Brooklyn with like five hundred dollars to our <laughs> name and you like, yeah, we'll find a job in no time.
0: <laughs> Living dangerously there. <laughs>
6: wow. Like, finding a job is a, is a challenge. And I'm like, oh, we have, like, a college degree. and We should be all right. We're smart enough. But we couldn't find a job. So we eventually got on, like, unemployment and just sort of just traveled across the the country. Like, just doing stand-up. But how did we break into? Yeah, we were traveling, doing stand-up. On the government's dime. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the queer, We were buying weed. I funded our weed. It was fantastic. Uh, and we were, we were just like getting better at stand ups and just enjoying comedy, just learning what the process is like to create jokes, going back and forth. And then we went back to New York and did an audition for the late night show with Jimmy Fallon. Nailed it, because that's what we do. <laughs> uh, that too much. That's too much confidence. I think they just booked us cause we were Black twins. <laughs> But it doesn't matter. We did it, got it, and then everything just sort of started to grow. Yeah, we did the set, and it went surprisingly well. And uh, an executive, or it, it was a guy who was creating um, Friends Night. Who, for, HD for, for ADHD. For ADHD for Fox. He saw the set. Nick White. Though. Nick White, though. And he asked us if we had any animated ideas. And yeah, we we smoked and thought. And we were like, let's just talk about our struggle as Lucas Bros in animated form. So we just talked about living in Brooklyn, being broke and just trying to make it. And we used moving because it's like, why not? Yeah. So, most comedians try to be like, you know, some versions of themselves. So they want to, you know, they want to play stand-ups or actors. And we're like, that's kind of lame. So not lame, not lame, but like it's been done before. So like, mm-hmm. you know, we wanted to do something that was a little bit more. You know, interesting in a in a world that we're not quite familiar with, like moving. And plus, we're like we we're as shit, so we thought that there would be some irony. There. <laughs> I've never moved anything in my life. No, no I fucking dread moving. It's the worst.
8: <laughs> oh god. So, uh, as comedians, what are some of your favorite comedic duos and comedy shows out right now that inspire you guys creatively?
6: That's wow. a great question. Another great question. It's so duos. much. Well, I mean, I, I, they weren't necessarily a comedic like duo. I mean, they were a duo in the movie, but Ice Cube and uh, uh, Chris Tucker. Oh, yeah. That, um. I thought that they were great together. Yeah. The chemistry was incredible. It was surprising that they haven't worked together again. But, uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. Tina Fey so and Poehler. Abbott and Costello, the Marx Brothers. Uh, I like the Broad City Girls, I like Abby, Abby and Alana. Kid and Pill, they're cool. Kid yep. Pill. Trying to think, What? what are some historically? Historically. I mean the Skalar brothers were they were they're an influence. Kid and play. Kid, <laughs> play, <were> Kid <laughs> and Play. They were great. Kid <laughs> and Play. They were dope. Kid and <laughs> play was awesome. beeves and Butthead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were pretty dope. Oh, uh, Ronald Reagan and George Bush. Yeah. Wow. Great <laughs> <laughs> One of the best comedy duos of oh, yeah, yeah, all time, right, right. Bush and Cheney. Bush,
0: and
6: Cheney. Bush and Cheney. <laughs> 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 who it else? I mean, there's so it's, it's so many good duos out there. Like I think we named a ton, but Her- Harry and Ron, Harry Potter and Ron Weasley. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah they good. <laughs> yeah. I to think who else? Uh, shit, I feel like I don't know. I, I think yeah, I think like Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why They were not a comedy. They were a the comedy. I'm sorry they took a big joke. Uh, Martin Luther King was apparently very funny. Yeah, he's a funny guy. Yeah.
7: When you say uh, his name, put some respect on it.
6: Put some That's, respect. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Put
4: there some respect
6: go. on it. That shit was crazy. That was, uh, oh, Birdman and Lil Wayne. Right <laughs> Birdman and Manny Fresh. Birdman and Manny Fresh. Yeah.
9: Smooth. Smooth. Um,
6: the comedy out there right now is fantastic. I think we're going through a bit of a renaissance because so yeah. many different people are being able, except for black people, are being able to <laughs> explore different uh, <laughs> concepts and like just like, expound on it. Like we got Master of None was fantastic. Lady yeah. Dynamite is going to be fantastic. This is a plug for Netflix. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Broad City, the, you know, Car Carmichael show. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the Donald Glover stuff. Oh yeah, going. Atlanta, I think it's gonna be awesome.
10: Yeah.
6: I haven't I mean I've heard great things about it. I haven't seen anything yet, but I think it's gonna be dope. What am I watching? I am still watching community. I know it's not on T V anymore, but I love that show. Oh uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah. Oh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yes. I love that show. Yeah, I love that Titus show. Is, Titus is the fucking funniest. He might be the funniest person I've ever seen. <laughs> <It's> <laughs>
7: like, everything every
6: to me. I laugh. <laughs> <laughs> he kills everything. <laughs> He's you- never not funny. But what else? And some stand-ups you got like so many a handle yeah. a handle is probably one of our favorites jack knight byron bowers uh tiffany Haddish, a Burrell, Rock.
4: There's a lot of young
6: it's black it. talent out there man I, I, that's what i'm excited about i feel like black people are doing different shit, and yeah, it's yeah. time for us to start getting more tv and more film because it's yeah. lacking
7: yeah and yeah
6: can't, I, like I think this year is going to be pretty big. I think 2017 can be sure, big. because ISA Ray has a show coming, I mean, yeah. coming out. Uh, yes. Yeah, like, uh, black women in particular, I think they've been, been under completely like, underrepresented. And I hope that this year is a, a bit more transformative. And they because see- how many shows do we need about white girls in New York? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, New York is a struggle for white <laughs> girls, is so
0: unauthentic when it comes to oh your experience. I'm so, so in that, in that, in
6: just one. Or Asian or Latina, just something just to show like the, the how I mean how diverse New York is.
7: It would destroy the lighting.
6: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's what the director probably said. No, that's not good for lighting.
7: <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is Karan, and as I shared with you, my mother's an identical twin, so I've heard all kinds of crazy twin stories for my entire life. This question mm. is for both of you. What trait or gift or ability do you admire in your brother? And how does it make you two stronger? Oh,
6: wow. Mm. Never heard that question before. And it's fantastic. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. This, this is Keith. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is Keith. So I'm talking for Kenny. I'm talking about Kenny. Sorry. Um I would say my brother's, he's. Don't think too long. <laughs> no, 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 I don't want to make a bullshit response. Uh, I would say he's fearless, you know? Like he doesn't let anything stand in his way. He was the one to, to think about uh, doing comedy and he's sort of been the, the, the visionary in the group. I've always been a little bit more apprehensive to take risks and Kenny's never really been that way. He's always, uh, right. yeah, he's always just been a gunslinger. And I think that that has propelled us uh, so far, and made us better comedians because of his tenacity, and I and I sort of I've, I kind of feed off of that. Because when we play basketball, he's always like the the vocal one and the sort of the leader out there, and I sort of feed off of his energy. Uh, and it's it's just necessary for our our uh, our chemistry. But on the flip side, you know, sometimes you need a person who is pragmatic and who thinks and who's more tactful. And I think that's what I admire the most about Keith. Like he can just see the entire situation and say, okay let's do that, let's do this, but let's not be too rash, because sometimes you have to kind of observe and then do shit, whereas I I don't normally do that, I just fucking go for it, Mm -hmm. but his restraint, I think, creates a more symbiotic relationship, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the things that I truly admire about Keith. He's also, like, the coolest motherfucker I know. (laughs) He's so cool, man. I'm trying to be as cool as Keith. I'm working on it. (laughs) Yeah, you know, Kenny just sort of, he just, I don't know, he's very intellectual, and he he, he thinks on another level, and I think that that, I think that that makes our relationship uh, more fruitful because we're able to talk about things that you know I feel like most people don't get to talk about uh, mm-hmm. on an intellectual level, and I get to do that every day, you know, and that's. It makes you sharper as a comedian. Yeah. What was the,
7: what was the last thing you guys have contributed to just because you were morally compelled to do so?
6: Wow. So we we've been. Uh, working at working with bernie to mm-hmm. try to get him elected that's probably not gonna happen but it i felt morally compelled to do it because i see so many college kids and younger people sort of just struggling with the recession and minorities, and str- and minorities struggling with the recession and mm-hmm. struggling with you know financial stuff and i was just like i want to we, we need a candidate who you know who's going to shake things up who's addressing these issues as much as I, mean, I think Hillary's obviously a better candidate than who, who, who's whoever's on whoever's on the Republican side. But I feel like Bernie was able to ask questions that most candidates would never ask, and I, I don't know. It just kind of moved us. Yeah. Um, and you know, obviously, with the Black Lives Matter stuff, like you want to. I feel like he was addressing those issues in an indirect way, but uh, it was the same. It was a, sort of the same uh, problem. And our and, and our father was arrested too. So for some drugs. Sh- I mean. He was connected in the, the drug game. And I saw a lot of, like, black dudes go to prison for dabbling in, in drugs. And I'm like, but white people aren't going to prison like that. And they use and sell drugs at a similar rate. So I'm like, that's just morally wrong, man. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, mass incarceration cool. is a big problem for me because it's like, not only are our Fourth Amendment rights being violated consistently, it's like people are going to prison and standing for 10 to 15 years. And, we and were, no one gives a fuck. And we were directly impacted by it. At that did 15 years on charges that I believe were. I mean, you know, I mean, he obviously he violated the law, but 15 years is it's just excessive, and it it, it destroys families. Like our family got destroyed because of it, and I, and I think that people forget that like human lives are being yeah. lost. They always talk about it in statistics, and I think that it, it prevents people from seeing the more personal, mm-hmm. more individualized mm-hmm. aspect of it, and I think that that's a big problem. Uh, that should be addressed because everybody smokes weed. Every, yeah. The only, only niggas are going to prison for it. So it's <laughs> right. like, mm-hmm. that's a fucking problem. Yeah. And like in terms of like Coke, I mean, I've seen so many white people, like, white people do Coke at like Starbucks. Like, it, it's, <laughs> Right. And, and, and yet, and a cop walks right the by co- and says, a just co- says, what up? And I'm like, dude, like you're arresting niggas for, for trying to make money for, for a family. you can't get jobs. You can't get jobs. So it's like, a, it's a catch 22. Um, and yeah, I felt like we were we were compelled because Bernie was actually saying some stuff that I felt was truthful, and I think that he's uh, he's opened up a Pandora's box, and I think that it's going to compel a lot of young people to to be more active.
8: Just a, a side <laughs> question, because you guys mentioned the mass incarceration. Were you guys? I actually live in New York. It's KB. Did you guys happen to check out the museum um, drug policy? They were doing a pop up last week. They had three events. It was incredible.
6: Sadly, we're in soulless LA. So, like, we uh, send out on a a live. I'm sure LA ain't going to do a mass incarceration museum. They have no incentive. But I'd love to see that. That sounds awesome. Yeah, if it comes back. Sounds awesome.
8: No, but it was very, very informative. And if it comes back, I definitely recommend it. I went on the last night and just the art alone just starts a whole host of conversations about this issue.
6: Geez, I want to see that sounds. that sounds incredible.
0: Well, you had mentioned earlier that, you know, so many black people and people of color are making waves and in the digital age. And I see that, you know, people are embracing nerd culture a lot and black people are embracing nerd culture and blurred is a term that, We love on the Black Girl Nerds podcast and so many other websites coin the term. So I have to ask, would you guys consider yourselves to be blerds? And what are your thoughts about so many people of color embracing nerd culture?
6: I don't even think that it's people of color embracing nerd culture. I believe that it's fine. I think that the media is finally accepting that blacks aren't just sad about slavery or thugs Mm -hmm. or like like violent there's always been this subsection of of black like W.E.B. Bois, he was a nerd Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and and all like if you he was kind of a nerd like we're all we've always been sort of nerdy but it's just like it's not the narrative that The media wants to accept because it's such in contrast to what how people normally see us yeah i just think we're getting more exposure the internet has been great because it's like fuck the media fuck tv fuck film we can get our message out without going through those channels so now people are finally saying oh black people do like other things black people like other things (laughs) <laughs> I just I was not aware of this. I'm like, yeah, fuck, we're fucking human. Like humans like different things. I mean, like uh, we're just as diverse as 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 white folks are as eight. like it's it's a diversity in, in in blacks that I feel is finally getting exposure and it's and it's only going to grow and it's only going to get uh, And America's terrified of uh, informed nerdy black people because we're going to be the most radical. We're going to be the we're going to be the people call people out in their shit. And we're going to be educated. And I think that sort of scares some people. And I'm like, fuck it. Let's just, let's just go all in. The, the key, of course, is all of us sticking together and doing it together. Like, right. we, 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 we have too much strife. And it's like, no, we all have one common purpose. And that's to elevate our Yeah, absolute and utter freedom. Yeah.
7: Love that. Wow.
8: So um, just tell us a little bit about how your working relationship with Hannibal and Gerard Carmichael came about.
6: I mean, it was pretty. It was pretty organic. We we actually met Gerard at um. We went. To, we moved when we moved to New York. We met Gerard at an open mic. Uh, it was called Wood, uh, Woodshed, Woodshed at Legion Bar, and we met Gerard like just like randomly. He was just waiting waiting to go in, and we saw him. We were in our car, and it was freezing outside, and it was snow everywhere. So we invited Gerard in, and I think we were we weren't drinking, but we were just sitting back and talking about Biggie. Yeah, And that was, like, our first conversation with Gerard. That was the first time we met him. Then we did the open mic, and we just hit it off. We hit it off, and then uh, we we came up to L.A. to work on the uh, Lucas Pro's Moving Co. and Gerard came through. And Gerard was just started writing on the show with us. We were like, fuck it. Gerard's yeah. fucking funny and smart, so let him write on the show. And we yeah. just he started writing, and then we put him in as a character. And then it just grew from there. With Hannibal, Hannibal was sort of above all of us before when we all started, when we started doing open mics, Hannibal had his own show at uh, the the knitting, factory. the knitting Factory. Hannibal was doing a show at the Knitting Factory, so we went there and uh, we asked him if, if we can get up. And he was like, "Yeah, I don't give a shit." And uh, he let us get up. It was like our first, one of our first big spots in New York. And we, I think, we bombed. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was just, it was just fun to just be in that environment and just to see like niggas doing creative comedy. It was one of the best experiences of my life. And then we yeah we just been friends with Hanwell ever since and then we wrote him in as a character in the cartoon and he was he was cool about it.
7: So I noticed we had a mutual friend uh, over the weekend. Uh, what are your thoughts on lemonade?
6: Because <laughs> 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 oh we okay.
7: I went in on Pierce Morgan and I know that you guys did too. What a
6: fucking asshole. He's uh, a jerk. He's a jerk. He, he, I mean, you like, know oh. he
0: trolls black Twitter for a living, right? Yes. Like,
7: yeah, I know, I know. He
6: does. I, I, okay. it's, it's a, he got what you know he mean, wanted. Jamie,
0: I was bored. I was
7: bored.
6: He definitely got what he wanted. Um, <sighs> he's a fucking asshole. But Lemonade is, I mean, is revolutionary. Master- it's revolutionary. It's <laughs> revolutionary. Yeah, it's it's our thriller. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it blew my mind. i watched it three times and I'm just like, holy fucking Christ. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about The week. That black women had like Harry Tubman got the twenty dollars bill, and then when. and then Beyonce did this. And I'm like, this must this is one of the greatest weeks for black women ever. And then right. we got a black first lady. So oh like, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, this is this was a great week uh, outside of Prince dying, but he transcended. It
7: he transcended. He
6: transcended. That's right, he transcended. But I'm glad that Beyonce did this to you know you know bring up a little bit more hope because it was kind of it was, it was a kind of a sad week and. And then she dropped this, and obviously it's sad that the, their, their relationship is. a little... Or different. is it? I think that I mean it's a possibility that this was all a plan by Jay Z and, and Beyonce and so, to sell title. I mean push title on people. I don't know. That she's just not that so felt good too of personal. an actress. And that felt way too personal. I mean Beyonce's <laughs> never been that person. But well, what
0: about she, the elevator fight with Solange? Yeah. That's the thing.
6: That's what I'm saying. It's like, a I mean, full that was circle real.
7: moment with
0: lemons and lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
6: that What'd cool,
7: refreshing drink.
6: Cool. <laughs> what did you guys think about it?
7: I thought it was I thought it was amazing and I have to, to be honest, I'm not a big Beyonce fan. she, she just I, I appreciate her and I, I appreciate yeah. her artistry and her performance value is immense. She's incredibly talented. But I feel like this is the first time I actually saw her or heard her. I feel like this is her first album for me. This is her first adult album because even her self-titled album, Beyonce was still about her sexuality in connection with a man. It wasn't about about her. It had nothing to do with her. This had to do with her making an actual connection beyond her sexuality to women everywhere. Not just black women, but everywhere. So, and and artistically, freaking brilliant.
6: Yeah. Yeah. It was was gorgeous. And and what I love about Beyonce now is her embrace of political activism. I mean, I didn't know she, I didn't think she would go this far. Mm -hmm. I thought it was just like she was paying lip service, but she is there now. Like she, like she's, she's transitioned from a pop star to a artist political Mm -hmm. activist. And it's like, I love this about her. She didn't have, she's alienating fans. By embracing this, potentially losing money, she's like, "I don't give a fuck." Yeah, this is a message that I need to get out, and I'm going to do it. And she's so fierce, and, and I'm she's like, like, "Fuck Piers Morgan." For it. It. <laughs> I like Beyonce when she was like happy and not like saying was, shit. Oh
7: my god, like I liked you know, her. He said I liked her when she was when she was singing and dancing.
0: <laughs> I was like, are you serious? The you about just Beyonce say you like is, the Negro with the, the gym? Beyonce is, she was, she didn't have to do this. No, like, she doesn't have to go the political activist route. She can make as much money as she wants being the glamorous diva that she is. But she decided to go down this path and yeah. did it so brilliant. And I'm, I'm with Karan. I wasn't like a huge Beyonce fan before Formation happened. It was actually the Formation video that yeah. turned me into a full, Hardcore
6: stand, yeah. Right. I'm, I'm
0: in the formation didn't do
7: it for me because the, the lyrics and the visuals didn't match me. up, okay. they, they did not match up. Issue. So it was half, it was, it was almost there because you couldn't watch one and get the other, you had to watch That's them right. together. But this, was
6: this just a, that was just a
7: taste. the film and the music can stand alone, and it's really a remarkable work. It, she, it was just. Yeah. Well done. She, I, I'm, I might not be a stand, but I'm stand adjacent. Yeah.
3: Well, <laughs> I
8: was, I'll say this. I, I have to agree with the both of you. Like, I was not a huge fan before, and I'm actually from Houston originally. Wow. So, you got to be a fan, you know, people are trying to stone me, but. <laughs> I'll I will say that this album was incredible. I mean, I call all my family like, have y'all got that new Beyonce yet? Same, because yo, you did. same I did the same thing. Does every Black woman have this Beyonce album yet? If not, you need to purchase it because it is the first time I feel like an artist has said, Black women, I love you, you matter, you're beautiful, you can do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have overcome. Come everything and you are fantastic and, and you don't need uh, permission you know, we're gonna break some chains we're gonna heal and we're gonna move forward and
6: it was
0: you know, a like,
8: very woman
6: recognition and that's what she did and it was it was just bloody brilliant i, I couldn't stop thinking about my mom while watching him yeah uh, it's like getting yeah. that, that struggle and like you you you, yeah. you know the struggle that you guys yep. go through and like what my mom's gone through and like that there's a visualization of it all it just just yeah. brought tears to my eyes man it was it was it was fucking wonderful it's brilliant. brilliant. Beyonce made me cry. Beyonce made me cry. <laughs> I shed some tears. That was a, it. Was a religious experience.
0: There
7: were some allergies. Like, I had allergies. I did. It was. It
0: was, it was your allergies. It was my allergies. It was, allergies. It was a very womanist um, very. experience. And what I really loved is that she. Uh, specifically picked black women that mm-hmm. have been scrutinized in the media yes. like Angela Stenberg like Quavaz and A. Wallace like Serena Williams and yeah. everything yeah. was just very purposeful and tactful with this yeah. record so props to Beyonce Prop. like I'm, yeah I'm I'm a stan <laughs> yeah, it's like a family deal over
7: here we're going to watch it again tonight So
6: I would defend Beyonce to the death now I'm yeah yeah and, um, can, can I say fuck Jay Z? <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't know. The, the, that's just speculation. We don't know if he did anything uh, he's wrong. I don't know. Uh, Jay Z has given a lot to to black people. Has he though? Yes, he has. Simple Doll is a fantastic album. Yeah, but the black he kinda, albums a fantastic. He kind of promoted a, blueprint, a great he album. He promoted a way of life that I feel I feel has been pretty uh, detrimental to, yeah. to, to 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 black culture. The misogynistic oh. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
7: Well, technically, <laughs> so did Beyonce's father.
6: Yeah. That's
7: that. Yeah. yeah. People are speculating that it's about her father and not Jay Z.
6: Father and not Jay Z.
7: Mm-hmm. People are speculating that it's about her father and Jay Z and her mother's her. new husband and finding the love again. I've heard oh, so many blast. amazing perspectives. <laughs> it was just an incredible journey from start to finish. It was brilliant. It really was truly brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I'm gonna need Oprah to sit down with Beyonce and have a yeah, discussion. Get that in her. Yeah, she's the only one that can make her speak in more than five words at a time.
6: Right? Maybe we can get Paris Morgan to interview Beyonce now. Oh, be
7: with scones? He's gonna need some scones.
0: Five year old scones. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I just want to say, Kenny and Keith, thank you so much for coming on our show. Before you guys go, we always want to know where we can find you on the interwebs, what mm-hmm. projects are you currently working on, and okay. give us all your, your social media shout outs.
6: Absolutely. So we're going to be on Lady Dynamite. Well, first, before we do that, we want to thank you guys for having us on the show. Uh, this yes. was a great interview. You guys are fantastic. So thank you. Yes. Oh, thank you. I'm sorry. Oh, I see awesome. I'm too rash. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, Good. I want to thank you guys. Thank we're going to be on Lady Dynamite May 20th. It's coming out on Netflix. Uh, we're both on The Grinder for Fox. That's on Hulu. Uh, Lucas Rose Moving Co. is also on Hulu. And if you, what else? Oh, we're working on a stand up special for Netflix. Mm-hmm. I don't know when that's coming out. That could be in two weeks or 20 years. <laughs> it's going to be one or the other. <laughs> uh, uh, Depends on how much weed we smoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we are also working on a TV show for Netflix, but. We don't know when that's coming out. And, our, oh, yeah, it's just Lucas Bros. At Lucas Bros on, uh, for Twitter and at the Lucas Bros for Instagram. And if you just type in Lucas Bros, we'll come up somewhere. And oh, and uh, I think that's it. That's it. I think that's it for us.
0: Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. This was fun.
6: This was awesome. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. Thank you, Black Girl Nerd <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome.
0: Thank you,
7: Thanks, you. You guys. Thank
11: you guys.
0: Our next segment features the cast of the 1977 remake of the miniseries called Roots. Malachi Kirby, brigade Jean Page, Erica Tazzle, also producers Will Packer, Mark Wolper, and costume designer Ruth Carter, was there to discuss their experiences working on the eight-part miniseries that is scheduled to premiere on Monday, May 30th, on the History Channel, Annie and Lifetime. I do just want to add a quick production note. I was holding a microphone during this screening, and lesson learned, I need to invest in getting a mic stand because there was a lot of movement of the microphone in my hand while this discussion was happening. So I do apologize in advance for all of the noise that you can hear in the background from the microphone, and hopefully you get a lot out of it. I still wanted to insert this segment in, and I hope you guys have an opportunity to Get a preview of what's to come on Monday, May 30th, when Roots premieres on network television. For now, take a listen and enjoy this snippet of the Roots screening at the Tribeca Film Festival. This screening was hosted by Sunny Hostin.
2: The dialect down, um, I hope so. <laughs> but um, what was curious to me was what did you draw upon to develop a character like that? Because it was different than the Lavar Burton character, who, you know, by many, many people's standard, sort of, you know, got that was just genius at that. But this is just something so different. How did you develop that?
12: Well, the first thing was doing my best to not recreate what Lavar did. I didn't want to touch his performance at all. Um, For me, he came to this project fresh. He looked at the script, he looked at the project, and by his own intuition, he gave himself to it. And I wanted to do the same thing. I did research on the culture, the tradition, um, things like, you know, even simple things like the way that they sat, the way they ate, um, the way they would greet an elder in the village. Um, I did my usual character work as an actor, you know, just doing the whole character arc and reading through the script and understanding what it was that we're actually trying to tell. But in terms of the actual journey that Kunta Kinte goes on, To be honest, I had no idea how to prepare for that. I still don't. (laughs) Um, It's epic, to say the least. And to be honest, my main form of preparation for that was prayer. Um, I felt that there were things that Kunta Kinte goes through that I would never be able to access by means of a physical or intellectual mind. and for me, also, I thought about, OK, there were so many enslaved people that didn't even make it off the boat, let alone live and have children once he got gone to the plantation. And so I was thinking about what it was that gave him the strength to survive all of that. And I'm looking at myself, and I'm not in thinking, you know, um, so it wouldn't be the muscularity. But what I found, it was his spirit his spirit and his knowledge of self. And for me, that's the main form of preparation that I took was to fill my spirit and fill my knowledge of self. Um, And in doing that, actually, as Malachi, I found, for want of a better word, a great pride in where it is that I come from. And for me, that's what I held on to throughout this journey. As I believe he also did was his sense of pride of where he has come from and carrying on that knowledge that he was able to pass it down to his children. What do you
2: think the message is for the young black male who watches this? What is what is the message, the Kuta Kinte message?
12: That our history is not does not begin as slavery. That is the main point of focus I would like a young black man to see when he watches this um, and to also be proud of his ancestry, to not think that it's a negative thing to be African. Um, and to also understand that those people who were enslaved were not weak and it's nothing to be ashamed of, those were strong people. Um, if they weren't, they wouldn't have been slaves, they would have just been killed. But they were taken to be slaves because of their strength, And they survived. As mm-hmm. Will said. They survived. And we are here now because they survived. So yes, that's it. Preach. Okay.
2: We've gotta talk to Reggae Jean Page, Chicken George. I mean, that's night three, I believe, which I have screened. It is simple. Unbelievable. It just jumps. Knife 4, sorry, just jumps at, just at you um, off off the screen. You're three and, three three and, and four. <laughs> right? yeah. So um, this was originally played by Ben Vereen, mm-hmm. Such an iconic character, sort of uh, a flamboyant character. Yeah. Um, did you watch the
9: 77 version? Yeah, I've watched it three times. Now. <laughs> Another Brit, I hear an accent. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I'm based in London, but... I mean, I'm kind of nominating, but I grew up in Zimbabwe. And I think oh. I'm one of the only cast members that I read really into, I don't know about South Africa, who's lived in Africa. I mean, um, I specifically just said thank you to Malachi, because as someone who grew up in Africa, often when we see ourselves portrayed on television, particularly by Americans, there's a bit of a wry smile. And it's like, oh, that's what you think we're like. <laughs> um, but that's one of the best portrayals and one of the most respectful portrayals of African life and African history, because I've seen very little respect for African history from anyone, including right now in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so that just touched me just now, actually. Yeah.
2: What, what was your um, motivation for Chicken George? How did you connect with the character? Uh,
9: and George isn't huge. He's mm-hmm. kind of a big character in every sense of the word. Um, and so there's kind of so much to connect with, you mostly just have to get yourself out of the way. I find it's natural, just let him come through. There's so much material on the page. Um, again, literally, he talks through like 90 pages. Yeah, my, yeah. <laughs> my night. Um, and so it's mostly just kind of letting someone with that kind of, uh, so much energy in the most extreme circumstances um, and try to figure out where you find that, what you're doing with it, and be respectful of anyone who can be that extraordinary under that much pressure in circumstances so Um And just kind of, like I said, be respectful of that, get out of the way of it, and let it, let Josh tell his own story. Um, and kind of accommodate that as much as possible. You know what I mean?
5: Yes.
2: And, and you can tell when you, when you see it, yeah. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And your wife, partner, played by Erica Tilda. What is so fascinating is, part of the storyline is that she loses her husband, um, he's taken away. And um, the strength and the dignity that um, you show, because you keep your, your family together. And um, I want you to sort of talk about the power and the importance of the female character in Roots because while Kuta Kinte is sort of the, the, the meat of this, of course, women play such a strong role. I mean, you saw it here um, when the, the woman was helping them try to take over the ship. So there was a real partnership that, that
1: you um, show. What What's your take on that? Oh, my body is still shaking. Thank you for your work, no, okay. Thank you. yeah. This is the first time you've seen it. So they saw it for the first time, Mm -hmm. also. There are (laughs) definitely- There are definitely um, many and several representations of strong and resilient women and throughout the miniseries. As the fourth matriarch of this family, I devoted a lot of attention to the matriarchs that preceded me, Benta, Belle. And Kizzy, I, I looked at a lot of their relationships with their children, then to Kunta, uh, Bell to Kizzy, and then and then myself, and Bell I'm sorry Bell to Kizzy, and then Kizzy to George, <laughs> which I witnessed firsthand. And the obvious purpose and role that we give in this story is that we are literally the physical carriers of the lineage that begins with Kunta and ends with Alex, um, Alex Haley. Um and then when I was reading uh, night one and it was so beautifully portrayed when Benta gives the necklace to Kunta, I began to think a lot about the ancestral torch. And that necklace obviously makes it to America and it ends the series with us. We just had a moment yeah. watching that? I yeah. saw that those beads
9: get passed on and we have that moment. Yeah. Um, okay. Three episodes later. Yeah,
1: exactly. And just kind
9: of seeing something literally, physically get passed through the generations. Um, it's really cool to see that for the first
1: time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in terms of that, I also began to embrace us as the carriers, the protectors, and the pastors of that ancestral torch, with that, which that necklace became very symbolic for me. Um, as So there's that. I have to say this about Ruth, and then I'm gonna put this in a, a, put a pin in it and come back to it. Last year, uh, Essence Magazine honored Ruth as one of their Black Women in Hollywood honorees, and before she read her acceptance speech, she took the stage and she looked at this room filled with African American women, and she asked us, oh, I'm gonna cry. Can you feel the power about presence. Okay, so put a pin in that. (laughs) Night Three was written by uh, my dear friend, Charles Murray, and in the the first version of his script that I read, he gave this extraordinary circumstance to Matilda at the end of the episode, where George's fate is decided, Mm -hmm. and Tom Lee comes back to the farm and flippantly tells Kizzy and Matilda that he's gone. And before there's any time to process that loss, he demands of me that I decide which of my, which three of my eight children he's gonna sell. And it was that moment that I wanted to specifically tell the story of Matilda. And even though we changed that, we changed um, the circumstances around that, I could never get rid of that initial visceral response to that circumstance and used it as the jumping, off point of, the jumping off point of where I created this story. And it was that moment that I realized and appreciated Matilda, the power of her presence in this story. When we talk about Matilda, she's often described as a preacher's daughter and Chicken George's wife. That's the correct thing. George is very much <laughs> the husband. <president>. That's
12: <laughs> usually the case. <laughs> and certainly, you know,
1: I love my father in this story. I am fiercely protective of him. I share his undying devotion and faith. I am obviously, you know, George's wife and he is the love of my life. But I found myself identifying and describing myself as the mother of Kunta Kinte's eight great grandchildren. And so how did I play that? I don't know. Um, (laughs) Inspiringly. Beautifully. 20 years. We have 20 years. I'm so emotional. Um, This the first time I'm talking about this since we were in New Orleans. But the idea of that 20-year separation, that he didn't get the opportunity to pass on to our sons and our daughters with Kizzy, that that became my responsibility. So that's in addition to the role and the importance that this woman played and this story. And I hope by the end of the four-night event that whoever experiences it realize the presence and the power of the women. Of the women. And, it's, this woman. It's and, a, yes. and of this woman in particular. And I think
2: it in many ways mirrors the importance and the presence of African American women in our community and in our families. Yeah. No question. Um, it mirrors that in, in many respects. And you mentioned Ruth Carter. Mm-hmm. I don't know that she needs this introduction, mm-hmm. but she has costumed 40 films, I believe, perhaps? Oh. Over 40. Over we'll 40. The Butler, Malcolm X. Amistad Selma Chirac um, has received Academy Award nominations. Um, I I will say uh, I was able to visit the set um, in Louisiana, and Ruth allowed us into her sanctuary, really, where the costumes are designed. It, for me, was a light bulb moment. And it was just, to see her work and to explain it was fantastic amongst all of the costumes of Kizzy. Um, Chicken George, you saw Fiddler's outfit. Um, Please tell us um, the amount of research that you've done, your process, to get it right, because you got it so right.
11: I I don't wanna bore you with that. (laughs) (laughs) Well. I just want to talk about the collaboration with these brilliant people here on stage. Um, Please do. I do a lot of research. Yeah, I do. And I have to. I have to know what the clothes were for each er, each era. It's 100 years, and people didn't wear the same thing for 100 years. (laughs) So that being said, I take this story that she just told you for 10 minutes. Uh, it, It goes on. And I sit with her in my fitting room. And we come up with, we come up with a with wardrobe that fits that story, and that that's, goes on with reggae. Reggae walks into the fitting room. He's a ball of fire, <laughs> and he has a story. He's pacing around the room, and he's talking to me, and I'm am following him, and I'm listening to him. And I've got I've got the history of his costume. I know exactly what the pieces are, but I'm listening to his story and his arc, and where he's going, I'm listening, and then I throw a coat on it.
7: <laughs> and
11: he's still pacing the room. And then I get a pair of pants on him, and he's feeling it, he's feeling it. And then I throw that bowler on him that Ben Vereen had, and I said, you know, that may not have been around in 1806, but we're gonna pay homage to Ben Vereen, and we're gonna use it. And he goes, I don't know if I really want to, I might want to make this my own. I might want to, and he's twirling that hat around. He says, but I don't know. And then I take a picture. And I show him the picture, and he says, yeah, that's it. So it's a real
12: collaboration.
2: And then Malachi comes in and I
11: say, you know, look, Liberty the slaves, Lord Legionnaire, who knew? Lord Legionnaire in the Ethiopian Regiment, they freed the slaves too. Here's the hood they wore. Here's the hat they wore. Here's the boots. And he puts it on and he kneels down on the floor and it's almost like he can feel the water. And I take his picture. I have that picture on my phone. And it's like he's there in the moment. And then he looks up at me and says, yeah, this is it. The power of the That's the magic, the magic.
5: The the That's the beauty. That's or, the feeling that you want. But Ruth makes
9: some mental costume in your clients. It's, it's ca- You're doing character work over really. it. That's what's so wonderful.
2: It's, yeah. it's just phenomenal. You see the progression. So many tif- different periods, and you see it in the costumes. Um, I want to open it up to the audience as well, because I'm sure I'm sure there are a lot of questions. Um, do we have a mic for members of the audience? Great. Can uh, you go to this one right
5: here? The first raise your hand. Yes, please. Hi. Um, first, I just want to thank you all for having the courage to make this project. Because I'm going to be completely honest, I was terrified to come tonight. Ooh, I'm going to start crying. Um, I've seen a lot of things portrayed, and I have kind of lost the stomach to watch anymore. Because the further we get into society and reality, the more detailed. Things become, and the more truth is shown. And it's funny because I grew up watching Roots and Amistad and everything. My mom made it a very big point to be aware and knowledgeable of where we come from. And I I think I'm having an identity crisis. Um, And I want to know after seeing this very new portrayal of this production, how has it changed each of you? Do do you view yourselves differently now? Today in 2016, having, being torn from a homeland and losing your name and and, and your family and your language and having to take on this whole new life to become a new person and then now here we all are? how, How does that affect you? Malachi? Thank
12: you for your question. One of the first things that stood out to me was how beautiful Africa is. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, I've seen Africans portrayed, they don't look beautiful. They look depressed, they look poor, they look like I mean, how did you guys feel when you saw Drifaria? I mean, for me, it was colourful, it was vibrant, it was joyous. Like, the people were happy, you know, they were smiling. They didn't have flies going around their face. Um, They had shoes, do you know what I mean? And even if they didn't, like, they walked with a a sense of pride and elegance um, and royalty. Um, And to know that that is my history, it's not to be from Africa. Mud huts surreal, but that doesn't mean that you're poor. That's a different way of life. It's a different way of living, and it's respectable. Um, And to understand that that it's respectable to come from Africa. It's not less than being from London or being from America. It's respectable. Um, In many ways, I believe it's (laughs) better. Um, For me, personally, um, there are a lot of things that London and America have taken from Africa and is in our society today, and you don't even know it. but also to understand, as I said earlier, the effects that slavery has had on our mentality today, on mine in particular, um, to see the amount of things that are kind of paralleled with today. um, It just helped me to have an understanding of a lot of the young children who are very angry, and they don't know why, you know, um, who are there's a sense of of pain and of injustice that a lot of people feel, and they don't even know where it stems from. Um, And so it's given me a sense of of peace um, and even more of a desire to give these people that knowledge so they can understand why they're feeling the way they're feeling a lot of the time. I hope that answers your question. And
2: to piggyback on that, um, a question for Will. It seemed to me that there was this parallel that you could see where um, people were working together and Kunta Kinte saying, my brothers, let's do this. And um, Fiddler is is holding Kunta Kinte. And and, and you see this kinship. And so current day, we talk a lot about black on black crime. We talk a lot about the divisiveness in the African-American community. Was that intentional to show the bonds between um,
10: the Africans? No question. I mean, that's something that the the uh, writers talked a lot about. A lot of themes, a lot of symbolism, a lot of uh, subtext and nuance. And what interests me the most, as you said, is uh, the manifestation of the physical change of slavery on us as a society now. An American society, black and white. Uh, the destruction of the family, we know that that is something that uh, more than the, Chains more than the whips, more than the uh, the the, the harshness of the conditions, the verbal abuse, the destruction of the family is something that, uh, as a black community, we still feel the reverberations from. So that's another thing. Every everything for me goes back to what we can take from this and the conversation that it will spark and how it will be received by a new generation. And that's something that if you do not understand that, if the weight of the scenes that show the destruction of the family, uh, that show um, on the ship when, you know, Kunta says, my brothers, you know, um, not Kunta, but when they say, my brothers, do not, let's, let's work together, right? Let's not fight. Um, if you don't understand, again, from which you come, then how can you really truly understand why you feel the way you feel now today? How you how the generational there's some negative generational cycles out there um, where fathers aren't involved and don't feel the responsibility and families you know have been destructive still to this day. It's important that and the writers talked about it. We talked about it and we talked about what you know you can't you can't do everything even though this is you know. Uh, this is eight hours, but there's a lot that you know we couldn't do. There's a lot that had to come out. But one of the things that was very important was that aspect of it, because it is the family, that family unit, and the symbolism of how this attempted to destroy the family that, to me, is so weighty when we think about how this should be received and the conversation that should be sparked today, right now, 2016. Uh,
2: there's another question.
4: I have to say I was extremely moved. Um, it's the first time I saw Roots. Um, I, as as a young person growing up, um, you know, we were always uh, told by our parents, you know, we have to look at Roots. But um, the the question I really want to pose, um, you know, Hollywood uh, and you know the film industry, you have such a powerful platform um, for imparting such important stories, and I feel that there is a disconnect between. Um, the work that you do, which is important, and uh, the education system, um, especially um, our elementary and middle school education, even high school education system. A lot of the issues around slavery, a lot of the nuances around slavery, I find that it's, it's very whitewashed, um, and it's, it's sanitized to the point where the image that we present or the image that we receive as children um, concerning the slave trade uh, is very transactional, right? And you only really learn and appreciate the nuances um, of slavery when you become an adult. Like myself, for example, when I went to college, I decided I was going to take some courses in African-American studies because I wanted to appreciate and understand uh, my ancestry. Now, the question I'm getting at is I I see that there is a potential um, for the work that you do you know, as, as a director, you do amazing. This, was, this is an amazing um, piece of work. How then can you bridge that gap um, of empowerment, right? Um, to ensure that, you know, younger generations are systematically and properly informed about who they are.
2: In the educational system? In the
4: educational system.
2: Uh, Mark, are there plans to have students um, see this?
13: Absolutely, it's happening already. Um, Colleges across America were already starting to have screenings for them directly. Um, but obviously the whole point for me of doing this project was about young America. Black and white. Because the white, my children have to understand from where the black race came as well. This is not a one-hander where, okay, let's you know understand as black people where we came from. We have to understand as white people where we came from as well, where this relationship that we're in today came from. So making a film, making a film. And everyone in between. And everyone in between. You know, art is always where I think everything begins. Discussion comes from art. Revolution comes from art. Education comes from art. Uh, You know, our hope as filmmakers, as actors, is that the art that we've created will reach out to my 16-year-old boy and Will's children and everybody's children and a new generation of people to have the same experience that the people who saw the first Roots were. To start the conversation, the dialogue, the debate. That's what art always does. So we create the art and we put it out there and hope that it creates the debate.
4: Um, I'd
9: really what you? like to say really quickly that art also isn't academic. People cannot help but create their own, <coughs> own resonances when you tell the truth. What I did not expect to get from that was that moment when Gunter said, um, my brothers and those dancers, the white people, are afraid of us. Okay. That hit me. Oh, um, and suddenly, I, is it Maya Angelou's poem, the smile? Like suddenly I made that connection. That's a very personal connection. I don't know if that's deliberate or not deliberate. But those resonances will always appear if you tell the story and if you tell the truth. And so there's all kinds of non-academic branches that can come out. My brothers are do down say the white flag aren't scared of us, do you? We have um,
2: time for one more question. I don't want to pick.
13: Uh, <laughs> okay, we can do two. Okay,
2: we can do two. Someone's waving.
0: Yes?
3: Yeah, hello, everybody. My name is Taycorn, and I'm a filmmaker. I'm from Brooklyn, and I went to a historically black college, such as uh, Mr. Packer. And we actually had a conference at my school about uh, the beginning of America. And of course, you know, since America was found on slavery, um, the topic of slavery came up. And we actually did speak about our roots in the conference, but what actually came up about roots was, um, as far as Alex Haley being sued uh, for the story, and also, just the points about how, like, the story is actually, you know, um, is debated, you know, the facts of the story, and there's a lot of, like, fictional elements to it as well that was discussed during the conference. So um, I would like to know if anybody here can actually speak on the validity of the story because, you know, the truth is very important, and we must tell the kids the truth. Mm-hmm.
2: Mark or Will?
13: Yeah. The, Alex wrote a novel. He wrote a history as he saw it. And again, it's art and it prompts conversation. The history in our miniseries and in his book is accurate. Um, And if it prompts conversation, and this is a story of a family, you know, I mean, we could debate forever where he got the information from, how accurate it is. We know for sure that later in the history, his information is more correct because there's more history available, and earlier and the piece is less correct because there's not as much material available. One of the things we were able to do in this Roots is because of the reaction to the original Roots and the book and the miniseries, the academic research, the archeological research, the historical work that was done as a result of the first Roots gave us more material to build this one more accurate than the last one. And 30 years from now, somebody will be able to make that one more accurate than this one. We're always learning more about ourselves and about the world around us. And, and art always will reflect that. I don't know how better to answer it than that. I hope I answered it. Yes. Hi. Hi.
7: I'm so excited. Once again, phenomenal job. I, I, I sat there, and I thought to myself, what what could I ask? And I look at Malachi, you look like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. With this, <laughs> he, told, he told me he's
2: still processing it. It's the first time he's seen his work. Yes,
7: like, the scenes, there were so many scenes where I almost stood up and was like, Lord, <laughs> how, how? And I, I think... How did you push through that? that I was waiting on the, the last thing and, you know, your name, your heritage, and they have the flashbacks and your family kind of vanishes. And how did you push through that? Because it was amazing. It really was.
12: Thank you. Honestly, I don't really have a much better answer than the truth, which is that God Prayer and praising God, um, His Spirit gave me the strength. Yeah. Every single day, I literally—I don't know if you guys noticed—but every single day, before every take, I prayed, mm-hmm. and after every day, I prayed again, just for the strength to do it, and also for the integrity um, of playing it. You know, I. As I said before, I, I don't. I've never been through that kind of pain. And because of that, I don't know how that kind of pain would make me feel in the long term. It's like continuously, just it's unrelenting. Um, and I'll say this on the day that we did the whipping scene, again, it was just the day that I had an idea You know, no one's actually going to hit me because it's illegal. Yes. So, <laughs> how do I respond to that pain, I felt like it was more than just being beaten something else was going on there and I prayed and I asked God for help and guidance as to tell his truth and we did it, one take we got through it in the second take I was filled with a pain that I had not prepared for, it felt like I had felt the pain of everyone else that was ever whipped. And it it took me to the point where I broke down in tears, the cameras got rolling and I couldn't get up, and I was tormented by it. And I broke down not because of being upset, no one was actually hitting me, it wasn't because of physical pain, but it was just suddenly my mind was open to that pain. And it wasn't the pain of being whipped, it was the pain of your Identity being taken out of you. Um, and just to know that that happened to so many people, there's so. My last name is a result of that, Curly. Do you understand? That's not my African name. So many people's names were ripped out of them. And it was horrible. Um, and you go through that and you're tormented, and it's, it's like it, it takes a toll on you at the end of the day, you still have to keep going. And for me, as I said, my strength was prayer just going back to God every day and asking for his strength. And
2: as we started, I said this is a story of family, identity, and resilience. I hope that you will support this series. You will see many moments like that, that struggle, when when Chicken George, your character, um, gets taken from his family. You will see it with Matilda's character when her her husband is stolen from her. I think it may have changed all of you, this, this experience. And so thank you so much, and I, I hope you will support the series, and I hope you will spread the word.